that time, you know, after pursuing pornography, acting out with any, you know, young girl that would give me the time of day, I was addicted to porn, I was addicted to masturbation. But at the time, I didn't think it was, it was evil. I thought it was the answer to my heart's cry. And so I wanted more of it. I was on one of my hikes through the desert and I was praying and this thought came into my mind, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when I thought that, I instantly recoiled. So wait a minute, wait a minute. Father, that's what you said about your perfect son when he was baptized in the Jordan River. You, certainly you're not saying that to me. And I just sensed the second thought that came into my heart was, are you gonna let me love you or not? By God's grace, I said, Lord, I've gotta come to you, but I don't even know how to really do this. This is a, this is a whole new level. I don't even understand where to start. He said, oh, yeah, I know, I'll show you. And the Lord said, you and I are gonna go down into this cave. Don't worry, it's dark, it's scary. You won't like some of the things that we find there but I'm gonna be with you. My parents were uh, an interesting mix. My dad basically grew up in a Christian home. He had a good solid uh, foundation. My mom, not so much. Uh, when they had me, they were young. My dad was 18, my mom was 16. They were legally married, uh, but you know, they were teenagers. And uh, my mom had gone through lots and lots of trauma growing up in her family, I think, she really was very kind of standoffish regarding God. My, my dad had always, uh, I think, had a love for the Lord, but he had a lot of issues that he struggled with, addiction issues. And so my dad would take my little brother and I to church. My mom never joined us. Uh, and he would read Bible stories to us uh, uh, at night. So I had something of a foundation there. And, you know, I remember going to church and uh, Sunday school and things like that. But then my parents uh, split up when I was about seven. And part of what caused that was uh, my, my mother had me and then my brother Ken and then my sister Tammy. But after three months, Tammy died suddenly in her crib uh, of what they used to call uh, crib death. It's now called sudden infant death syndrome. And I remember vividly waking up one morning and hearing my mother just shrieking and I saw a fireman walking past my open bedroom door down the hall carrying my baby sister and my mother trailing behind him just weeping and I didn't know what was going on but of course I knew something something was was happening and she'd actually found her dad in her crib that day and the reason that was significant is because my parents marriage had always been kind of rocky but that trauma just kind of finished him off. And it wasn't long before my mother took my little brother and I to Texas to live with uh, her parents. And my parents divorced after that. That was a, a, a tough time in the experience of our family. At that point, then uh, my, my mom, who didn't really have any real skills, she, she got work as a cocktail waitress. Uh, and I was introduced to kind of the honky-tonk lifestyle in Texas. And, she worked so very, very hard just to make ends meet, but it was really hard. And when she actually met a man who was willing to kind of, you know, take her under his wing and, and pay her bills, and she, she jumped at the chance. I think not only because, uh, you know, we struggled financially, but my mom was just a very, very broken person, like I said, and, and she was desperate for, for acceptance and connection with somebody, but she didn't know how to maintain those connections. And she literally went from one cowboy to the next. Uh, and they all seemed to, to have this tendency to, to be abusive. I watched my mother get beaten on a regular basis by different men. 
My little brother and I learned how to hide in cupboards and things like that to, to steer clear. So it was, it was a challenge, but as, as hard as all of that was, probably the greatest uh, source of pain was just my relationship with my mom herself. My mom would become uh, very emotional, very uh, almost explosive at the smallest thing. You know, she was the kind of uh, mother who, if you spilled your milk, she would just almost like have this meltdown, like, you know, what, what are you doing? And, and so I grew up feeling lots and lots of anxiety. I remember a story, it just might seem kind of silly to some people, but I remember before my parents split up, I was in the bathroom one day and I've always had a very vivid imagination, which has been both a, a blessing and a curse. <laughs> but I was hanging from the towel rack in the bathroom. So I'm about, you know, maybe even five or six years old and I'm playing out some adventure, you know, I'm, I'm the hero hanging from the cliff edge and, and you know, the bad guy's gonna step on my fingers or whatever. And all of a sudden the towel rack came off of the wall in my hands <laughs> and I landed on the floor and made a big ruckus and I felt this terror come into my chest, just, just this, this, this abject dread because I knew my mom was gonna come around the corner and she was going to yell at me or, you know, tell me that I was stupid or I was clumsy. And uh, I, I can still, strange as it sounds, even at this age, I can still remember just her, her, her bulging eyes and the veins on the side of her neck and, and her uh, asking me, what, what are you doing? And I can joke about it now, but for years I thought my name was frickin' Brat. Mm. Uh, it was actually Russell, but, but my mom just, and I understand now, of course, for years I didn't understand that, she came from just the most incredible brokenness. She was, she was molested by her grandfather. She had a, a, just tons of pain and her, her family was just a huge mess. She didn't have the wherewithal to be, you know, uh, the kind of mother that she wanted to be, that, that my brother and I needed. She was just so easily triggered. She would always talk about having a nervous breakdown. So I lived in constant fear that my mother was just going to, to lose it and that I would probably be to blame. I have another memory of a couple years after that. I was, I don't know why I always had my adventures in the bathroom, but <laughs> I was in the bathroom. I had this little Mickey Mouse nightlight and I'd filled up the, this, this is just exactly the kind of thing a little boy would do, isn't it? I filled up the, the bathroom sink and I was playing submarine with my Mickey Mouse nightlight and Mickey was, you know, making a dive and then surfacing and making a dive and surfacing. And then I thought it would be fun to plug Mickey in. Now Mickey was full of water now. And when I plugged it in, I heard this pop and blue sparks and like, oh, uh, I could have been electrocuted, but I wasn't afraid of being electrocuted. I was terrified that when my mother came around the corner, I was going to be verbally abused and cut to ribbons. And that was really almost like the, the norm in my life. Basically what we would call a day verbal emotional abuse, being shamed, being constantly told I was a bad boy, I was making her life impossible. And so even as a little boy, I just kind of assumed that that I must really be a horrible person if I can make this grown woman, you know, completely lose control. I mean, how bad of a son must I be? And looking back now, I realized my mother, she wasn't trying to be abusive or cruel. She was just parenting me out of her own brokenness. You know, there's a saying, you, you can't give what you don't have. And she had never had any real care or comfort or mentoring growing up. And so she was winging it. But that really began to shape how I saw myself. Uh, and my mother was especially nervous about anything having to do with sex. I remember around that same time that Mickey and I, you know, had our adventure. Uh, I walked into the bathroom one day, not realizing that my mom was taking a bath. And when I spotted her from like the, 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 the waist up, 
she, 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 again, she screamed this, this terrible scream. I think it was probably her own trauma. And I, at first I just froze. I thought I'd really done something bad, but then I, of course I, I hightailed it out of there. But I felt like I'd seen something horrible, you know, unbelievable, and that somehow I was to blame for that. Of course, it was just a little boy mistakenly walking in on his mom taking a bath. And had my mom been a little more healthy, she might have said, you know, she might have covered up and said, uh, sweetie, mom's taking a bath. You step outside, wait till I'm done. But she couldn't do that because her, her own level of shame and, and self-hate was so great that she saw everything as a horrible emergency, a crisis. And so that was ingrained in me and in my little brother. When my parents split up and we moved to Texas, Probably the, the, the next memory I have that was, that was formative for me was I was walking home from school. I was probably in the first or second grade. So I would have, I would have been maybe about uh, seven or eight. And I was walking through this field on the way home and I saw this, this thing in a, next to a bush that was kind of trashed and around. And I saw it and I, I went over and looked at it and it was a magazine. And it was some kind of a pornographic magazine. And I looked at this and I saw these pictures of, of naked women and they all seem so happy and joyous and, and welcoming and you know, they're showing me every crevice of their body and I felt like two things happened at the same time. I felt like this, this adrenaline rush that hit me like I'm not supposed to be seeing this. But at the same time I almost felt like this comfort and this warmth. And looking back now I realized that what occurred in that moment was in my own life I felt like I didn't get any real fathering because he wasn't there and certainly no mothering, uh, no nurturing, no, no comfort, no, no affection. So here, here, was, here were grown women being kind and welcoming to me and, and revealing themselves to me. And so obviously it had all the sexual components, but there was an emotional component that, that took place. It felt like nurture to my starving little soul. And I think in some ways that experience, it marked me. For the first time, I felt like, well, now I get to be with a woman, see a woman, have a woman share herself, be honest, be exposed, literally and figuratively. And, and this was where I'm going to find my comfort. And that basically sent me on a journey for probably the next six, eight years of looking for pornography wherever I could find it. And this, of course, was before the Internet, so you couldn't go online. Uh, but as I got a little older, 10, 12, 13, I'd go to uh, like used bookstores or, or, or places that sold magazines or books. And if there were like any sex manuals or something, I'd, uh, I'd open it up and I'd be, I'd be standing there with, with people walking all around me, just hypnotized by what I was looking at. I mean, a couple of times the store would say, uh, yeah, young man, if, if you're going to look at that, you need to go somewhere else to look at that because, you know, I don't want you doing that in front of the whole world. I just, I, I, I constantly looked for something sexual. If there was like somebody in my elementary school class who seemed to like me, I mean, I was, I was experimenting sexually as much as I could with any other girl who would have me. My whole life became about finding my sense of worth and belonging and, and significance through uh, the, the sexual love of a female. I didn't realize all the mother issues that were part of this or, or just, you know, the fact that some legitimate nurturing needs that God intended me and every little boy to, to have fulfilled were, were not only being starved, but they were even being uh, attacked in the other direction. I was being, I was being shamed. I was, I was being insulted. I was being told I was a horrible little person and I believed it. 
So I was desperate for any little crumbs I could find. And somehow I connected in my mind, not surprisingly, the, that acceptance of those crumbs of, of love and, and affection and care with sex. And so that set me on a journey and I, I just continued to kind of devolve from there. At 16, I was just, you know, a typical kid in high school. And my, I remember when I was with my best friend, Dan, our, our goal was to finally get a job and earn enough money to hire a prostitute. And if we could be with a, a grown woman like that, then it would just meet all of the deep needs of our soul. That's how deceived I was and how, how, how broken and bound I was that I, that I saw that. Hmm. Let me back up a little bit. The good thing was at 12, I encountered Christ for the first time. When we lived in Texas, uh, me and two of my good friends, Marty and Kyle were their names. We hung out together. We were invited to this church where they were showing a movie, uh, some, of the people watching us might remember this movie. It was called A Thief in the Night. It was one of those really bad Christian movies from the 70s that the production values were awful. <laughs> it was all about, you know, the Antichrist coming and the rapture and don't be left behind. I think they showed the mark of the beast. It looked like, literally looked like a UPC code, but it scared the heck out of me. And after the movie, the pastor got up and basically said, you know, if, if you don't want to be left behind after the rapture, if you, if you know there's sin in your life and you want Jesus to forgive you, well, come forward right now and let me pray with you. And almost as if on cue, my, my, my two friends and I, we stood up simultaneously and we shuffled to the, to the front. And we got down on our knees and the, the pastor laid his hands on us and just prayed that, you know, we'd be forgiven, that we would accept Christ into our hearts. They were bawling like little babies. Uh, I wasn't crying because I'd learned not to feel. I'd learned in my family growing up that if I felt anything except cooperation or happiness about what my mother wanted to do, I would be punished. I couldn't be angry, only she could be angry. Uh, I couldn't be depressed. That made her see that her life and, and, and the way she treated me was, was hurting me and wounding me. And that, that just made her feel really, really bad. But she took that out on me. And so my, basically, I learned how to, how to not feel from an early, early age. I, I froze that. I, I was very stoic. Uh, and some have accused me of still being that way. Uh, I have this George Washington face. Uh, I can have emo deep emotions, but it doesn't always, my, my face doesn't always get the memo. So <laughs> even though I didn't feel any you know, overt emotion that night when we were praying at this little Assemblies of God church in West Texas, something hit me. I felt this cleansing. I felt like for the first time in my little life, I didn't want to be this, this, this little kind of foul-mouthed punk that I'd already become by 12. I wanted to be good. I wanted to be a kind person. I wanted to be somebody who uh, had, a, had a, a positive impact in the world. I'd never felt that in my life, but I'm convinced that that was the night I was born again. But then I went home back to my alcoholic family, to, to, to my mother and the man she was with who regularly abused her. And just nobody followed up. Nobody, you know, called me or invited me to, to, to come to Sunday school or, you know, any kind of a youth group. So I definitely had an encounter with Jesus, but nobody helped me understand what to do after that. So my spirit was open, but I had no guidance. So I actually started going more and more into like occultic things. I was fascinated with witchcraft and, and anything satanic. And, and I would read books, even as a little guy, adult books about how to cast spells. And I mean, I was totally into that. I, I was fascinated by kind of the, the world of darkness. That's basically what was going on for the next few years. And I eventually ended up kind of moving more into a, a type of new age belief system, uh, trying to connect with my spirit guide, 
Had no idea I was, I was getting on the fringes of the demonic. Had no idea. Again, I just, I was believing all kinds of stuff I was reading, kind of metaphysical and like Buddhist Hindu kind of, of thought. It was that summer in 1978 that I had an opportunity to travel with somebody. Uh, it was really just strange. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of things in my life are very weird and unorthodox, but there was a, a woman, I lived uh, in a little town called Yucca Valley, California, which is not too far from Palm Springs. And I saw an ad in the paper one day, it said, uh, woman traveling to East Coast, looking for a traveling companion will pay all expenses. I thought, well, that sounds like an adventure. And how old were you at this time? I was 16. My dad, uh, he was an avid pot smoker and he, you know, delved in drugs and drinking, uh, had for many, many years. But he still had that spiritual hunger and we would, we would talk about things. Cause by this time, I'd actually left my mom's place when I was about 16 or so and moved in with my dad because just the, the trauma and the, the negativity that surrounded me was so awful, I just had to escape. And so my dad, even though he was a drug addict and an ex-con and he had lots and lots of problems, he was a breath of fresh air to me considering where I'd been before. And we talked about God. And uh, when, this, uh, when we saw this ad in the paper, this woman, she was actually uh, stationed at the Marine Corps base and she was going back to Boston where she'd come from. And she'd actually put money in a couple of banks across the, the country. And she just wanted to travel back, take her time. She wanted somebody to go with her. So I, I think I was the only person who answered her ad. Uh, we, we met somewhere, my parents and I, and uh, I lied and told her I was 18. She was a little concerned about, you know, uh, but she said, well, I haven't had anybody else respond. So we set out and we started driving from the, the high desert of California. And probably about three, four months later, we ended up, uh, in Boston, Massachusetts. But it was during that time that, that God really got a hold of me. I was still I was still reading all of this, you know, weird kind of metaphysical literature and I was into just I mean, you name it. I if I was into UFOs, I was into to to spirit beings and interdimensional experience. I mean, I was just I was just a sponge. I wanted all of it. But when we got to Columbus, Ohio, uh, we had to kind of just take a little break for a while. Uh, she decided to do a little temp work, and, and I was able to get a job, too, just for uh, like a couple of weeks so we could earn a little bit of money. And we stayed at this boarding house, and the, the woman who ran the boarding house was a, an on-fire Christian. Now, she was, a, she was an interesting piece of work. <laughs> she, she smoked like a chimney, and she had kind of a salty attitude, but she knew Jesus. God had used her to do incredible miracles, and I sat down one night and started talking with her, and I started telling her my, my theories about, you know, spiritual things. And instead of telling me, well, that, that all sounds like a bunch of silly stuff you've made up in your head. She said, no, what you're telling me, Russell, those, those are real experiences. You know, when you heard the voice, when you've seen these things and you've experienced these other things, that's real. That's, that's absolutely real. But she said, do you realize that you're on the wrong side of the spiritual world? I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, God is not the only one who can do supernatural things and reveal things to people and, and, and do miracles and signs and wonders. The devil can too. And, and the demonic world is real and they counterfeit a lot of this stuff. And it actually made sense to me. It's like, well, okay, she didn't tell me I was silly or crazy. She acknowledged that I had real experiences, but maybe I was playing with fire. Maybe I was on the wrong team. And it, it concerned me, it frightened me. And so I started peppering her with questions about Christianity and she had some decent answers. And the next day I, I got up and I decided that I was gonna, I was gonna seek this God. I had been kind of doing, I had actually been reading a Bible 
up to that time because no matter what literature or, or guru or, you know, uh, teacher I read, they always quoted from the Bible, even talked about Jesus. So I knew he figured in there somewhere. But at that point, uh, I fasted for the first time in my life, uh, and I spent the day without food, and I found a private place to pray, and I just said, Lord, if what this woman is telling me is true, I'm kind of on the wrong side of the fence here. But I want to know the truth. I do. I want to know what's, what's real, what's true. And if, if I'm believing things that are false or, or dangerous, then please rescue me from those things. And the only verse I really knew that made sense was John 14, 6, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I didn't know anything else. I didn't really understand the cross or any of that stuff. But I knew that, and I realized I've been running circles around Jesus. I've been listening to people who, could, who said they could show me the way or they could teach me the way. But Jesus is saying, I am the way. And on the strength of that, I just said, Lord, you know, if this is true, I want to follow you. I want to belong to you. I want to be your person. And that's when my, my, my life with Jesus really began to take off. We traveled the rest of the way across the country. I came back home. I eventually found a, a little church and started to get plugged in. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I had actually met somebody who cared for me. That might sound weird to somebody who's listening to my story that, well, so you're saying some invisible person made you feel loved? That's absolutely what I'm saying. Because I realized that even though God is invisible, that He's real. I started reading the Bible with fresh new eyes. I started being around other Christians who had a relationship with the Lord, and that started answering questions. I started connecting with people. I started praying and seeking God. And I felt like I was in a real relationship with someone who cared for me and who loved me and who got me and that I wasn't just an annoyance or an irritant to. So I literally clung to Jesus for dear life. Hmm. I did it not because I was so spiritual. I did it because I was so desperately lonely and despairing and hopeless. No human relationships had ever really touched the need, but I felt like Jesus was starting to touch that, what little I knew of him. How did he begin to deal with, with everything that was going on around you? Um, you obviously had hurt from a, from a younger age. The witchcraft, right? You were involved at some point. Right, right. You had these desires to want to even get involved with prostitutes and all of these different things. Um, coming in contact with Jesus and clinging to him, what was his response? What did he begin to do in your life as you begin to have this relationship with him? Well, the first thing Jesus did was he showed me that, you know, all of these little spiritual adventures and odysseys that I was pursuing were definitely uh, in the world of darkness, that there, there are spiritual beings who are holy and who are good, and then there are spiritual beings who are unholy and unclean and, and de deceptive. And I realized I'd been, I'd been hanging around, you know, with the wrong crowd. <clears throat> so I gave up all that. I, I mean, I repented. I wanted nothing to do with anything. I mean, even, even horoscopes is like, I don't want anything to do with any of it. And the next thing Jesus started dealing with was my lust problem. By that time, you know, after basically pursuing pornography, acting out with any, you know, young girl that would give me the time of day. Uh, so from, you know, like seven, eight, 10 years old, all the way up to 16, I'd already gotten in a lot of trouble. I was addicted to porn. I was addicted to masturbation. I was a voyeur. I would look through people's windows to see what I could see. I believe this proverb says, evil comes to him who seeks for it. Well, I found a lot of evil. I found things I was looking for and saw things that I shouldn't have seen. But at the time, I didn't think it was, it was evil. I thought it was the answer to my heart's cry. And so I wanted more of it. The first thing Jesus said is, you've got to stop lusting after every woman you see and thinking sexual thoughts 24 seven. 
And so as best I could, I just said, Lord, I want to, I want to obey you. I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to start what I didn't know at the time, like it says in Corinthians, taking every thought captive. So I just, I, I learned how to just catch myself and say, no, I don't need to go down that road. And it was just a constant battle. I was so, my mind was so pickled by the lust and the, the pornography and the constant search for some kind of sexual uh, salvation that it really took a while for me to, to get out of that mindset. And the masturbation didn't go away instantly. That was still uh, a habit. Gradually, the Lord helped me to, to let go of that. So at that point, you know, my mind was cleared up more and I was able to really focus on Jesus. And I, I just, I saturated myself in scripture and in prayer in the little church I was a part of, I even had kind of a reputation of being something of a fanatic. <laughs> uh, because when I had free time, when I wasn't working, you know, I'd, I'd pack a, a snack and some water and, and my Bible, and I'd literally take a hike into the desert and just find some place where I could be alone with the Lord on top of a little foothill. Or, and those were wonderful times. And the Lord began to speak to me even then. In fact, I remember the first time I heard His voice. And let me just say, when I say his voice, I don't mean an audible voice. I think sometimes people are confused, like, oh, you, you hear it, is his voice husky, is it deep? <laughs> I've heard it said that God's voice is sub-vocal. It, it's, it's not necessarily a vocalization, though God can speak audibly. I've talked to people who've told me they've had that experience, I believe them. But it was more uh, what the Bible calls that, that still small voice, that, that gentle whisper. But the first time I remember kind of confronting that, I was on one of my hikes through the desert and I was praying and this thought came into my mind, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the, when I thought that, I instantly recoiled. So wait a minute, wait a minute. That's, Father, that's what you said about your perfect son when he was baptized in the Jordan River. You, certainly you're not saying that to me. That, that's, that can't be, I must really be, man, I'm, my ego must be running away from me. And I just sensed the second thought that came into my heart was, are you gonna let me love you or not? I thought, wow, are you saying that to me? God, are you telling me that I'm your beloved son? And that began years of, of wrestling with, did I believe what he said about me or did I believe the message I was raised all my life uh, under that, that I was a bad, worthless, unlovable person? But slowly, because I was immersing myself in Christ, my ability to hear got better. My ability to discern got better. and. I was just experiencing a kind of reparenting. Jesus became the father I hadn't had. He actually became the mother I never had. He was so gentle and comforting and patient and nurturing. And so this was this was just like, you know, my everyday diet. I didn't realize at the time that, you know, as a t teenage Christian that my experience was a little bit unusual because sometimes when I talked to some of the other people at my church, they'd kind of look at me funny. And it wasn't because I was in a conservative church. I was, I was in a, a church that believed in the gifts of the Spirit and the power of God, but, but I was, I think, a little too much even for them because uh, the, the need and the desperation of me was so great that it was to that degree that I sought the Lord and, and wanted to get to know Him and, and learn about Him and, and let Him own more and more of my life. Probably about 10 years without even watching television. And that's not because my church taught that or that was, you know, some... In fact, everybody was free to do that, but I just figured, I don't want to spend all my time watching TV like I did before I was a Christian. I want to get to know Jesus. Wow. And that was actually a very healthy thing for me. So I got 
10 years to detox from media and movies and you know all, all that stuff. And I, I realized Jesus was taking me kind of down a unique path. I started getting involved in some ministry stuff. I, I, I led our youth group at our church and I actually started having opportunities to preach in some places. And mm. my pastor asked me to teach a Bible study with some people. And by now I'm like 20 years old because the word was just in me so deeply. When I was about 20, 21, I met the woman who became my wife. And that, of course, was, was uh, a turning point for me because I'd always believed, basically from the time I was 16, I said, I need a wife. That's, my, that's what I need, right? That's, if I have a woman, then I'll be fine. So I wasn't seeking porn, but I was still kind of believing that the love of a woman would, would take away all the, the pain and loss inside of my heart. Mm. I've come to understand now that that really wasn't the case. But uh, I believe that. And so when I got married at 21, and my wife was 21, I mean, we, we clung to each other. And that was a good thing. I mean, I was having sex for the first time. In, in spite of all the weird stuff that I'd been involved in prior, I, I hadn't actually had sex or anything really close to it with a girl. Uh, not because I wasn't looking for the opportunities. But I know now that God was protecting me from that. People that I've worked with now in counseling who've done that whole thing, they, it, it leaves permanent scars. And Jesus kept me from that, which I'm really grateful for now. So literally the first woman I had intercourse with was my wife on our wedding night. Wow. And I still remember that with a lot of fondness. Uh, just, it was like, it was shocking and wonderful and strange and weird and beautiful all at the same time. A lot of people can't say that. And I don't say that as a point of pride, I say it almost as a, as a point of amazement that somehow God was able to preserve me through all of my deviance and, and all of my searching uh, to, to be able to, to meet my wife and to be a real virgin the night that I met her, uh, the night that we, uh, we consummated our marriage, I should say. Mm. Those were good years. I continued growing in the Lord, but after a while, it's like even the love of my wife was not enough, and I'd feel this, this emptiness rise up inside of me. And I was convinced at the time that it was because that she wasn't taking care of my needs or she wasn't as responsive as I needed her to be or she was maybe a little bit reserved sexually. And so I would tell her, you know, I need more from you. And she, she'd try to measure up. But what I didn't realize was that maternal deficit that I carried inside was still there. And it was fueling a lot of, of what I was trying to get from her. I was trying to get the mothering from my, from my new wife that I never got from my mom. I was trying to get the nurture and the comfort. I started getting that from Jesus, but being married opened me up to a, to a whole new level. Uh, and that was a good thing. But you know, the, those, those ancient wounds from inside really came to the surface. There was a major turning point after we'd been married about seven years. Well, I didn't live in the high desert anymore. We had moved to where we live now here in Fresno. This was 1987. The Lord had given me a clear vision that I was supposed to come here and be involved in ministry here in Fresno. I didn't know what that looked like. He told me it would be pastoral. He told me he had a work for me to do here, but that's about all I knew. And on the strength of that, we, we picked up and we moved 300 miles to uh, a, a town that I wasn't unfamiliar with. It actually lived in Fresno until my sophomore year in high school. And then I went to live with my dad. So I was kind of coming back home, if you will. But I wasn't real thrilled about it because I basically kind of grown in my relationship with Christ and in kind of re being rebuilt as a person in, in the desert. I loved the desert. Some people hate it, but for me, it was a refuge. It was a real place of, of, of comfort and healing. So coming to the big city, so to speak, I only did it because I felt the Lord made it real clear that I was supposed to. So I did, and uh, uh, one thing led to another, and I was involved in pastoring a little church, 
and then I was an associate pastor somewhere for a while. But by that time, my wife and I had been married about seven years. I had a little two-year-old son, and I was still having this, this, this hunger, this ache that just, it would go away for a while, but it would always rise back to the surface. And finally, I realized that we, my wife and I needed counseling because this wasn't being addressed. And so I didn't even believe in counseling. I mean, I was so, uh, how can I phrase it? Not only was I on fire for the Lord, but I was also kind of like a, a fundamentalist in some ways. I, I believed, you know, it's clear right and wrong, and you don't go to a counselor because, you know, they're going to give you Freudian nonsense, and that's worldly, and you just go to the Bible. But I was so desperate, and I was like, well, I'll even try that. Hmm. So we met a Christian counselor, and uh, she, was, she was just a, a beautiful woman. She was very discerning. I think she had me pegged right from the start. But what happened in counseling, or it actually it was therapy is what it was, was she knew how to ask the questions that nobody had ever asked that I hadn't even asked myself. And when she said, well, tell me about, you know, your, your childhood and your upbringing. And, and I'm telling her all the stuff I'm, I'm sharing right now. She's just like, Russell, you know that isn't normal, right? You know that to be yelled at and to be screamed at and for your mother to curse you with profanities all the time, that's not normal. Well, it was normal to me. Growing up in a, in, a, in a trailer park in West Texas, that was my life. And being around people who drank Pabst Blue Ribbon beer and, and wore cowboy boots and listened to country and Western music, that was, that was normal, but it was all very uh, abusive and scary and chaotic and traumatic. And this gifted Christian counselor was able to help me see that what I experienced was not just a normal childhood with a few you know, hard breaks, it was actually abuse. Hmm. Uh, a pattern of abuse, and it caused me to start to see myself in a certain way. And then I, I started to go down a whole new road, uh, uh, a journey into the reality of what I'd, I'd lived through in the first 16, 20 years of my life. And God began to show me that I'd experienced genuine abuse. It had marked me. It had caused me to believe things about myself that weren't true. And it had catapulted me into trying to find comfort and love through sex. Uh, and even as a Christian, and I was in ministry by this time, uh, I was still, I wasn't looking to porn. The masturbation was behind me. I wasn't flirting with people. I was, I was completely faithful to my wife, but I was looking to her to meet all of the profound emptiness inside of me. And it was, it was in counseling that this started to really come to light. One day Jesus spoke to me and said, Russell, you always say that it's, it's me that you trust in. It's me that you rely on. It's me that you cling to. But have you noticed that when you're really lonely or afraid or, or stressed or hurting, you run to carry, not me. I just thought, whoa, that's true. And I realized in that moment that I was an idol worshiper. Just because I was lawfully married, just because we were both Christians, didn't mean that the dynamic between the two of us was healthy. I was looking to my wife to meet needs that I carried over from a very loveless family. And those, those, uh, those unmet needs were legitimate, even God-given. but. You know, the little boy in me can't be mothered by looking to his wife to play that role. I didn't realize that I'd been doing that, but I realized at that point and that I'd actually made my wife a God of sorts. It was at that point that Jesus gave me what has become my life verse, which was John 7, 37, where Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And I realized I'd been going everywhere, but not that I hadn't been coming to Christ, but not to the level I needed to. That there was a level of desperation and loneliness and, and even despair that I'd, I'd kind of buried inside of me and tried to even cover up with ministry in some ways. And Jesus said, you, you're going to have to get to know me at a whole new level. 
and he, he actually gave me a picture one day of, of standing like in this like wheat field, like you'd, you'd find in Kansas or something. I was a little bit confused. It's like, well, but Lord, I thought I, I had been intimate with you. You, you used me. I, I'd seen fruit in my life. Uh, you know, you called me to come here and be involved in ministry. I don't get it. Things seem to kind of be falling apart, not, not moving into a better direction. And it's like the Lord showed me this wheat field, like I said, and he and I are standing at the corner where, you know, where the fences meet. And there's just, there's all this, all this fruit, all this wheat just blowing in the wind. And, and it's like the Lord said, this fruit that you've borne is real. It, it, it's not pretend, it's not fake. It's, it's actual fruit. I've grown you up and I've helped you. But what you didn't know was there was this whole hidden area of pain and trauma underneath. And it was like, at the corner of the field was this huge gaping black hole. Like uh, I visited Carlsbad Caverns once when I was a little guy. And that's this huge cave system. And that's what it reminded me of. And the Lord said, you and I are gonna go down into this cave. Don't worry, it's dark, it's scary. You won't like some of the things that we find there, but I'm gonna be with you. And we're going to explore that. And I'm gonna show you the subterranean world that you haven't been even able to understand until now. Wow. And so that's when I started to look at the effects that trauma had had on me and the ways that I'd reacted even as a little boy by shutting off my feelings and by, by running to porn and by running to a world of fantasy and books and make believe and pretend and, because my, my reality was just too painful to deal with. And I was about 26 at that point and I began to, to realize that I needed Jesus to be the true source of love that my core being was, was aching for. I kind of look back on that time as the, the beginning of my transformation. I'd been a believer for you know 10 years, and I'd learned a lot, I'd grown a lot. I'd, the Lord had done some great things in my life. I'd led people to Christ, but there was this whole area of pain and woundedness that not only was I kind of in denial about and maybe suppressing, but I really wasn't able to look at it and deal with it. The Lord had to strengthen me to a certain level. I think that's why some Christians are, are shocked when they come to Christ, they grow, they learn, and then they reach this crisis or this, this trauma or this place of pain or stress in their lives, and it doesn't seem like the Lord is there for them, and so they jump ship. Mm. Well, that happened to me, but by God's grace, I said, Lord, I can't, I can't jump ship. I can't go back to the addiction or back to my old way of life. I've got to come to you, but I don't even know how to really do this. This is, this is a whole new level. I don't even understand where to start. And he said, oh, yeah, I know, I'll show you. This is real relationship, Russell. Nobody knows how to do real relationship. People know how to do sexual relationships. They know how to do some level of friendship. They know how to be social, but most people don't know how to truly be intimate. I'm, I'm gonna take you by the hand and show you that. Hmm. Russell, two questions here. First one, how did he do that, right, practically? How did he begin to take you through those dark places? And obviously we know that you had the counselor and um, well, the therapy with your wife and that was helping, but what were some other things that God began to do to be able to take you through that? And two, how does this revelation of everything that you have been through and how it was impacting you deeply and God showing you that, how did that affect your marriage? That didn't make all the problems go away because I still kind of held my wife responsible to be my emotional all in all. But slowly I began to realize that that, number one, it wasn't right, it wasn't gonna work, that she was a decent wife, but she couldn't be divine. She couldn't meet the needs that only Jesus could meet. The, the thirst that I had was deeper than any woman or any series of women could ever touch. And that's where John 7:37 was so crucial for me. Jesus basically saying, your thirst 
is abysmal. Your thirst is practically infinite. And you don't take an infinite thirst to a finite person, Russell. You've got to take an infinite need to an infinite source, and that's me. And so I did a lot of reading. Uh, I've, you know, uh, there have been some, since the, the 90s, there have been kind of a, a renaissance of, of Christian thought about counseling and psychology, and, and, and that demonstrated that a lot of what psychology taught was actually consistent with Scripture, you know, in the hands of, of a mature and skilled Christian. And I was reading some of those things. It was making sense to me, and the Lord was guiding me. That was huge just spending time again with him as I had always done, but now going deeper. And one thing that I had to do was my, my counselor said, Russell, we really need to kind of go over your history in depth. I want you to journal everything you can remember from the from you know time you were born all the way up through. And uh, I didn't really want to write it all out, but uh, this will date me when I say this, but I got my cassette recorder <laughs> and I put a tape in and I pressed record and I just started talking about what I recall from my early childhood all the way up through. And while I was just sharing, you know, these, these old stories that I thought, you know, I'd forgotten long ago, I was stunned by how the emotion would rise up inside of me. I thought, wow, that, that happened 20 years ago. Why do I still feel so much emotion about that? And, and the Lord was helping me see things. Remember one day I was, I was actually talking about my pornography addiction and, and my sexual pursuit. And I had always believed that my mother was responsible for that. She was the one who kind of was the reason that I was uh, so desperate and, and, and seeking those things out from a young age. But Jesus spoke to me and said, Russell, the abandonment, the loneliness, the, the devastation that you felt in regards to your mother, that was caused by her. But your sexual addiction was caused by you. In your loneliness and, and impoverishment, you went to porn, you chose to go there and your addiction grew out of that. Your addiction is not your mom's fault, that's yours. You created this. And this won't be a newsflash to some people, but to me it was like, wow. The, the two that I always thought were, were one and the same, the Lord separated them and said, no, the devastation, the abandonment, the, the worthlessness that you felt inside, much of that came from your interaction with your mother. But the sexually compulsive behavior, that was your way of trying to medicate this. And what that did, I mean, I, I felt guilt, I felt some shame, uh, legitimately so, some responsibility. But that also showed me that just as I grew this thing and, and allowed it to, to become a monster, I could start to shrink it. I could starve it to death. I could do something different. I, I could stop looking to women, or in particular my wife, to be my all in all. I could look more to Jesus. So those were some of the ways that I started to learn. Around that time, started volunteering with this organization, New Creation Ministries, uh, as uh, just someone that would come alongside people who were going through the ministry, and we'd pray with them, and we'd have even times of inner healing prayer. And the, the director at that time invited me to come and help out uh, at their Thursday night prayer time. I started doing that. I was, I was experiencing a lot of restoration in my own life, and then when I was around people who were porn addicts or who'd been sexually abused or who struggled with homosexuality or lesbianism or all kinds of just horrific experiences. When I would talk with them and hear their stories and pray for them, I was amazed how much I understood, how, how much kinship I felt with them. You know, I had people say, Russell, you, you seem to understand my homosexuality. Were, are you sure you weren't gay? I said, no, no I, was, I was never gay, but I know what lonely feels like. I know what hopeless feels like. And that's the thing I, I saw that regardless of of what these people struggle with, the, the details of it, it came from that same place of 
devastation and uh, a felt sense of abandonment. We have a saying here in our ministry, same root, different fruit. It was really the same root pain and brokenness and trauma that, that drove all of us in our various directions that came out looking different. We might go down different tracks, but we were struggling with uh, the same loneliness that, I mean, at a pathological level. And so I felt like I was with my people. I felt like uh, I understood sexually broken people. And uh, eventually I had a chance to come on full-time staff. And I've been uh, on full-time with this organization now for about 30 years. And I, I have a heart for broken, trapped, uh, hopeless people because I've been there. And here's the thing, I wanna be really upfront. Though, though the Lord has, has helped heal me and grow me up and, and give me a, a healthy, robust understanding of sexuality, sometimes the old abandonment rises up inside of me. There have even been times uh, over the years as a, as a Christian, as a leader, where it rose to the level of making me want to take my own life. It's really hard to explain. Somebody who hasn't tasted that may not be able to follow this, but people who have been broken and abandoned and, and kicked to the curb or, or hated, they know what it's like to feel so hopeless, like the only seeming relief from this pain, this brick in your chest, is to end your life. I remember once, uh, my wife and I had an argument over sex, and uh, I felt really hurt and devastated by it. But what it was, was actually I was reliving all of the abandonment that I experienced with my mom. And I left our apartment and I took a walk down the street, not too far from here. And I just said, God, this pain is horrible. So I, I thought Carrie was my last and greatest line of defense, but she's collapsed. I have nothing, I have no one now. All I have is you, yet I don't feel like you're making me feel better. You're not. You're not waving your magic wand over me. I don't feel relief. In fact, I feel like I'm, I'm tumbling into the abyss. And I was walking down this, this street and I said, Lord, if one of these cars should go off the road and hit me and take me out, I would consider it a gift. And I wasn't being melodramatic. I was dead serious. It's like death is preferable to this, this, this horrible heartache that's gripped my, my whole body. I can't. And I'm... As I said, I learned how to not be emotional, how to just freeze my feelings, but I just had hot tears coming down my face. And I was just saying, God, I, I can't. It's similar to what the prophet said in the Old Testament after Elijah had faced the prophets of Baal and then uh, Jezebel had threatened his life and he ran and he sat under a tree and said, God, it is enough, take my life. That was suicidal ideation. And that's what I was feeling. Thankfully, God didn't answer that prayer. And I've had to revisit that place that place of, of abject emptiness many, many times. And I used to try to run away from it or try to steer clear of it or go around it. And the Lord would let me do that for you know two, three, five years. But I ended up coming back and I had to meet him in that place. When, when I felt like no one had loved me, no one was going to love me, when I tumbled to the bottom of that well, I found Jesus at the bottom of that well. And what that slowly started to do was show me that my emptiness, my loneliness, my sense of extinction was not the deepest thing about me or the most real thing about me. Jesus Christ was. But the only way I could learn that, I think the only way anyone learns that is to go into that darkness. But most of us don't want to do that. And I can see why. I, I drugged my feet for years. I didn't want to, I didn't want to re-experience that. I didn't want to go back there and let Jesus unpack that for me and show me how he was actually present there. But I had to. And the, the good thing about that was not only did, did his love and his healing and his affirmation of me start to rebuild me as a person, but 
it started to take the edge off of this unquenchable yearning that I had for sexual fulfillment, even in marriage. That's actually what has been breaking the back of sex addiction in my life. Not just having accountability or not doing the bad stuff, but it's been Jesus' perfect love that's cast out my fear. But that's taken literally decades. How's your relationship with your wife today? Well, my, uh, my first wife actually went to be with the Lord. After 30 years of marriage, she, she died from uh, ovarian cancer. And as you can imagine, that was a challenge. My kids were adults at that time. Hmm. So I mourned her loss. And then about a year later, I met my current wife, Paula. We've been married now about eight years. And as you can imagine, the, the stuff that I dealt with in childhood, adolescence, even early adulthood, uh, it hasn't all been cleared up nicely with a, a little bow at the end of it. Jesus has healed so many areas of, of, of heartache and pain in me, but I'm not a finished product. I'm not totally healed. If I could compare myself like to this big pit, this big deep pit, I, I, I think I can say with confidence that 75% of that pit has been filled, but not 100%. And even biblically speaking, Paul said, in Romans 8, that we all groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption as sons. I think he's referring to this thing that no matter how advanced we are in, in, in Christ, we still know that, that we're not in the presence of perfect love yet. We're not in heaven yet. All of our tears have not been wiped from our face yet. Right. And so I'm aware of that. And yet when I feel some of the old pain creep back in, I've learned to run to Jesus right there on the spot. Say, Lord, this second woman you've given me is as good of a person as she is. She, she, can't, she can't plumb the depths of this, of this abyss inside of me. You've got to touch me right now. And I learned to come to Jesus even when I had just overt, like lustful thoughts, you know, saw some, some woman with, uh, without a bra or something. And I just learned to just be gut level honest with Jesus and say, Lord, part of me wants to just jump down that woman's cleavage, but that's not the answer. Lord, even if I had this, incredible sexual rendezvous with this stranger. Number one, I'd be destroyed as a person, but secondly, that, that wouldn't meet the need because the need's not just for sex. The need's not for excitement. The need's not for novelty. If I went home and my wife and I jumped in bed, that would be great. But Lord, the need would still persist. It, it's not a need that can be met at a strictly human level. The other thing that really helped me was I learned to really start opening up to other brothers. For years, I thought that my need was uh, a need for opposite sex love. To my surprise, I found that what my need was for was actually love regardless. And to have other men that I started walking with who I started to really share my life with and they with me, there was a bonding and a healing that would happen. I, I was experiencing brotherly love like I'd never known. My, my, my actual brother and I, we had a connection, but it was, it was marred by all of the, the weirdness and the pain and the chaos in our lives. And we were both you know, fighting our own demons respectively. And, Unlike me, I, I didn't want to be an alcoholic or, or follow the path of my family, but my brother did, and he ended up dying of cirrhosis of the liver at 45. He, he went down the very same road. He had the very same level of pain that I did, but he, he for various reasons, didn't take it to Jesus. He, he took it to drinking and to sex. He had many relationships. I was able to escape some of that, but I wasn't able to escape the the loss, the, the shock to my, my system that the abuse had created. But now I've come to see it as something of a springboard that gives me an opportunity to be intimate with Jesus on the spot, right there in the moment, wherever I am. And it keeps me dependent. Uh, I find that 
Healing is not something Jesus has imparted to me. Healing is something I experience and live and walk in to the degree that I am currently consciously in touch with Jesus himself. So that's required that I learn how to pray like Paul said without ceasing. That's the secret for me. It's not, there are people that have a kind of zap theology, if you will. Uh, you know, somebody prays for them and they're delivered and they're totally healed. For me, healing is, is a living dynamic experience that happens as I continue walking with the Lord. And the level of pain that I once knew is largely gone. The, the suicidal ideation, the, the depression, the hopelessness. Every now and again, it makes an appearance and I have to deal with it. But I know who to go to now. I know whose I am. I know I can literally say that in all of my life, in all of my relationships, Jesus Christ has become my dearest friend, my closest friend. He knows me. He, he sees things about me that other people don't know. He, he knows things about me I don't even know yet. And yet he's always been so kind and so gentle and so patient and so, so parental. And yet he's invited me into his confidence. He's, he's, there's, a, there's a verse in, I think it's Psalms, where it says the, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. In another translation, it says the Lord confides in those who obey him. I've learned to obey, not because, again, like I said, I'm such a, a godly person, but because I've been such a desperate person. And when I, when I grabbed hold of that pearl of great price, I was willing to sell everything I had so that I could have it and, and have real wealth on the inside. And that's still what I want to do. That's what I want to live for. And what I have the joy of, of helping other broken people step into and experience. That's one of the reasons I wrote Breaking Free, because uh, as God started opening up more and more ministry through uh, New Creation Ministries, I would hear people say, well, well, Russell, the things you're sharing with me, the, the things you're telling me about, these are great, but is there a book I could read that would you know, kind of help me understand that better? And I'd say, well, you could read this book, and then you could read that book, and half of this other one over here, and kind of put it, and it just, it's like, I, I found myself thinking, man, I wish, I wish somebody would just kind of take all of this and, and combine it. And to my shock, I felt like the Lord said, well, why not you? I thought, well, that sounds crazy. I mean, the extent of my education is a high school diploma. I didn't have training in English or, or, or writing, or I didn't have a liberal arts education or background, but I just started writing stuff down as the Lord was showing it to me, and that became, that became the, the book that's now in its 21st printing. And I tell my story very openly and honestly, and it's, it's helped a lot of people. Well, Russell, I, I thank you personally because you're, we've used uh, your book, even in our church, to help uh, some of um, my friends and some of the people that go to my church. So, Fantastic. Um, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Russell, who is Jesus to you? Well, I can give you the standard answers. He's definitely my Savior. Uh, he is a father to me. He's the one who has disciplined me of, of my rebellious, self-willed ways. But over and above all of that, he really is my dearest friend. He is the one that I can run to. I have no fear that he's going to reject me. I've really learned a theology of the cross that when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, that it really was. All of my sin, past, present, and future was paid for. And so that frees me to, to never have to be fearful or, or concerned that he's gonna judge me or lower the boom on me or, or learn something new about me that disgusts him and makes him wanna throw me away. I feel absolutely known and seen and loved and heard by him. All I have to do is just is, is call on his name and just re remember that he lives with me, that he lives in me. I've learned over many years how to walk with him through good times and bad. He's done many, many miracles. I, I could share 
easily for hours about all the things he's done in my life since I've come to know him. And for me, the miraculous is almost like, a, for lack of a better way of describing it, kind of a daily experience for me. We used to have a sign in our hallway here at the ministry that said, we don't believe in miracles, we depend on them. <laughs> and that's been my life. I've got to have Jesus Christ reassuring me of his love for me constantly. I am what you might even call an approval whore. <laughs> I've always, since the time I was this high, I've been looking for someone to say that I was special or, or wonderful or interesting or that somebody loved me. It was all very narcissistic. But the Lord has helped me understand that there is such a thing as healthy narcissistic needs. People who have children understand this when, when their children are five or six and they say, look, Daddy, I drew a picture and it's a bunch of squiggly lines. And, you know, the father doesn't say, you call that art? <laughs> you know? He'd be a cruel man. He'd, but he says, oh, that's, what is this? Well, that's, that's, the, that's Darth Vader and over there is Luke's. Oh, yeah, well, that's great. So, I mean, what, what's a parent doing at that moment? They're meeting their, health, their child's healthy narcissistic needs. But when that's never been addressed, and that hasn't been addressed in the lives of many, many people, who's there for you then? Strange as it might sound, Jesus has said all of those things to me. He's told me things that I wish my parents would have told me. He's, he's been loving. There's no one as affirming and as even, if I can say it this way, even dangerous in the things he will say to you about his love for you and his concern for you. Uh, I used to say, God, I'm going to get a big head if you keep talking to me this way. And he's reassured me that I'll have plenty of crosses in my life to help balance that out. I don't have to worry about that. But but he's literally loved me back to wholeness. And there have been times when I felt like, wow, Lord, do you do this for other people too? And of course he does. But uh, Jesus for me is, he's the air I breathe. He's, he's the blood in my veins. He's the, he's the reason that I enjoy getting up every day. He's, he's the one I love to talk about. He's the one I love to talk to. I have a private secret relationship with him that is totally apart from ministry or praying for, you know, anointing to teach or preach somewhere where I can just be this needy, lonely, hungry little boy who falls at his feet. And he's always so loving and so comforting and so assuring. And I, 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 I can't say that enough. I, my words are, are so meager in, in describing the, the goodness of God's heart, the, the lavish, wasteful love that he has for us. Russell, for, for people who may find themselves in a position thinking to themselves that, well, therapy, counseling, it's not an option for me. I have Jesus in my life. He's going to do it. You know, we don't need that. And, and you were in that position at some point right. as well. Yeah, that's how I felt. So for those people who are in that place, what is a word of encouragement that you can give for those who are having that struggle? Well, contrary to what some people believe, the whole idea of counseling, it's not anti-Christian. It, it's, it's not you know, a worldly approach to, to dealing with your issues. Uh, it's thoroughly biblical. And scripture says, in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Constantly in the book of Proverbs, it talks about the wise man receives reproach or rebuke or exhortation or correction. James 5.16 says that if we confess our sins to each other and pray for each other, we will experience healing. I thought I just confessed my sins to God. Well, I do for forgiveness. But when I confess my sins to a, another brother or sister that's trustworthy, the fact that they can hear that and still be encouraging and loving toward me, that heals something in the human soul that only another human being can touch. God knew that. I mean, he even said to Adam in the garden, it's not good for you to be alone. What are you talking about? 
I'm not alone, Lord, I've got you. Well, I didn't create you just for me. I created you for others like you. You need them. And so whether you know you talk with your pastor or you've got a really good friend or a mentor or you actually see a, a Christian therapist, we need people who can go inside. In Proverbs 20, it says, the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. We don't know what those purposes are, those, those deep waters inside of us. Many times we need somebody else to say, well, could it be that you were dealing with this? Or could it be that you've been thinking this other thing? Well, I hadn't thought of that. And Christians are so threatened by seeking out counsel. But I'll be honest with you, I think it's mostly because we are stubbornly self-sufficient and independent. We could come up with super spiritual reasons why we don't need to see a counselor. But I, I know that God has worked in my life and in the lives of many people through a, a brother or sister who has the ability to hear and maybe some experience in helping people unpack some things and interpret them more accurately. I don't, I don't see that I would have made it or that my, my first marriage would have survived without that. Russell, any last words for people who are watching your testimony right now? I know that there will be people hearing my story who, who've also tasted the same desperation and hopelessness that I have. You might even be there right now. But I, I'm just going to tell you, you have never lived an unloved moment in your life. You have always been inestimably valued by your Creator. God is not mad at you. Whatever wrath God had against sin, He poured it out on the cross. He took it upon Himself. He doesn't want to judge or condemn you. Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it, we're told. You might feel shame. You might feel horrible about yourself. You might feel like you're worthless and unlovable. But you've believed lies. You've probably heard things in your own family. You're in a culture that's very judgmental and hateful and spiteful. And you probably have a voice inside your own head that says some of this stuff to you. But that's not Jesus. So know that Jesus loves you and he wants to reveal that to you. Even if you've known the Lord for decades, open your heart to that and let him love you to wholeness. Russell, for those who are watching your testimony right now on the other side of the screen and uh, are relating to what you're saying, are connecting in any way, could you just pray for them, um, for anybody who's just connecting with your testimony right now? Absolutely. Lord, I want to pray for, for the man, the woman, or the young person who is watching this right now, who may feel hopeless, who may feel desperate, who may feel like nobody gets it, nobody knows the, the depth of darkness that I'm in right now or that I've lived in my whole life. Lord, you do. One of the reasons you went to the cross was not only to die for our sins, but to step into the deepest, most hopeless agony of the human race and to taste it yourself. It felt to you like your father, whom you'd known from all eternity, had abandoned you and had left you for the first time, an experience that you had never known. And you tasted that. Scripture says you tasted death for every man. That doesn't just mean the end of our, our physical existence. It means this abandonment and annihilation that some of us feel. You went to the bottom of that. You drank that cup to the dregs. And it was horrible, absolutely horrible for you. You do know. Where were you, Lord, when we were being abused? Where were you when we were being molested? Where were you when we were being hurt and shamed and rejected? Lord, you were dying on the cross for us. That's where you were. Just pray that you would encourage those who are listening and watching right now that you love them, you love especially them. You didn't come to call the healthy, but to call the sick. You didn't come for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. Lord, you came specifically for the worst of the worst and the most lost of the lost. And even those who are Christians, 
who feel maybe a duplicity in their heart to say, well, I've got this, this area of darkness or addiction or the secret shame. If anybody really knew me, well, Lord, you really know them. You really know us. And you look at us, Lord, seeing our sin in the bright light of day, and you say, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Thank you, Lord, for loving us like that. I pray that you'd touch the person who's watching and listening right now and give them the hope that they can have real love, true love, love that doesn't go away when times get hard. And I pray all of this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.